2: If you transgress, if you speak out and say something that's different to this kind of accepted orthodoxy on gender, on race, then, you know, you you just don't fit in.
1: We're not getting our money's worth from the NHS. And if the NHS was organised better, the clinical outcomes would be far superior than where they currently are.
0: We are entering a period, I think, where people are going to die because of that inefficiency.
1: That is the ultimate first world problem. got My cockapoo shampoo and set and the courgette for my tray bake. Crikey.
0: <laughs> These are costs that people across the country will be being affected what?
1: by. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, it's back to the 1970s co-pilot as the cost of living squeeze hits Britain. Inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, was 9% higher in April than the same month in 2021, up from 7% in March. And on the old measure, the Retail Price Index, which the Bank of England used to target, inflation hit 11.1% last month. Last time prices were rising this fast, co-pilot, Shaking Stevens was in the charts, and <laughs> Bucks Fizz were ripping their skirts off at Eurovision, telling us it's time to make our minds up. As the cost of living spirals not least for less well-off families, the economic impact of fuel and food prices, not just of the war in Ukraine, but of Western sanctions and Moscow's countermeasures, is emerging as a major theme in British politics. Another unmentionable, now demanding to be discussed, is the future of the NHS Alison, something firmly on the planet normal agenda. Jeremy Hunt has a book out outlining how he would fix the NHS. Now he tells us, having spent six <laughs> years as health secretary... And you've written a powerful Telegraph column this week, link in the show notes to this episode, highlighting that the number of NHS bureaucrats has almost doubled since the pandemic, with almost no change in the number of much-needed frontline staff. So let's discuss the growing focus on our health service, Alison, as the gargantuan post-lockdown waiting lists come into view. But before that, last Wednesday, at the Soho Hotel in London, as Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons once sang, Oh, what a night. <laughs>
0: Oh, what a night. Wasn't it wonderful? I was just in a bath of bliss, really. All our listeners, every bit as wonderful, diverse. What an interesting group. It all worked wonderfully well. And we had the marvellous Sue Cook, who did an absolute pitch-perfect introduction. Professor Shinetra Gupta, Planet Normal, orthogonal to the orthodoxy star, came on. I think one day, Liam, we may get the marvellous, graceful Sinetra to say something disobliging about some of the scientists. She is, as you
1: said last week. You literally chided her. You're the politest woman on Earth. Say something controversial. Start slagging people off
0: that's not her style is it no. anyway and then we had also our third guest sir graham brady chairman of the 1922 committee absolutely marvelous and the audience really loved him and people at home it was very funny co-pilot because we were sitting a bit of a distance apart weren't we and i was looking over and i thought why is liam making those strange eye motions at me And you said to me afterwards that it was something people do in telly to give them signals. I thought, he is trying to tell me something, but I'm so happy I'm going to ignore him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was a rip-roaring success. I wanted to say thanks again to Jade Clark, to Lanya Carrigan, to the events team at The Telegraph, and of course to all our regular producers. We thank at the end of every episode. It was proof of concept. We will be doing more planet normal events in the future we apologize again to loyal listeners we know many many of you were disappointed that you couldn't get in-person tickets we hope the live stream was a reasonable substitute joining us virtually if you like and of course if you haven't listened to our 100th anniversary episode you can still catch up on the regular podcast but all in all i think a thoroughgoing success oh what a night
0: oh what a night Anyway, coming back to, we're going to talk a bit later, aren't we, about this terrible cost of living crisis. But it's linked in a way to the NHS, which was my big thundering theme in the column this week. Because as you know, Co-Pilot, we've seen this rise in national insurance, which was specifically to fund a health and social care levy. The government broke its manifesto promise not to raise taxes and has given the NHS a stonking extra 12 billion to help it catch up after the pandemic and eye-watering one in nine of the population is currently on a waiting list it's soon going to be you know spot the person who isn't on a waiting list isn't it so with that huge injection of cash I think the public would rightly expect to see a big improvement in patient care On the front line. But oh no, shock horror co-pilot. According to a new report this week by Policy Exchange, there's been an astonishing explosion of central bureaucracy. NHS England management has doubled since the pandemic with almost no change in the number of frontline staff. So while the Department of Health and Social Care and NHS England are busy creating more parasitical layers of management, the number of nurses rose by just 7%. You know the nurses, Liam, the ones who mop the brows and take the blood samples. The ones who
1: actually do stuff.
0: The ones who actually do stuff, who don't actually hold endless meetings reviewing what hasn't been done and how it could be improved but never will be. You know what totally outraged me, Liam, Is that many more people? Outraged? Me? Outraged? I know. Must be really serious. I know. I hadn't had any drinks this week like I had at the Soho Hotel. But many, many more people are employed at the higher pay bands within the central bureaucratic organisations. Than on the front line. So, just to give listeners an example, for the salary of one equality and diversity strategy manager, even though the NHS is amongst the most diverse organisations in the world, you could employ two staff nurses. Now, Policy Exchange says that the total pay bill at the DHSC and NHS England actually doubled in the two years since February 2020, with the number of senior officials multiplying by 125% because we know they
1: do such a brilliant job. You can just picture the scene, can't you? A young mother rushes into A&E with her sick child in her arms. Quick, quick, fetch me an NHS strategy and diversity officer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, we've absolutely been bombarded. We'll hear later from some listeners who've had some recent experiences of the marvellous NHS. Channeling
1: Alison Pearson, I'm going to pinch something off you. Mm. We're messaging each other a lot, yeah. aren't we, everyday yeah, are. co-pilot? Mm. I can never remember if you've sent me something on WhatsApp, on Twitter messages, on text <laughs> messages, by pigeon posts. Pigeon, pigeon, <laughs> we normally, yeah. You sent me a brilliant quote from Tony Benn, who's somebody we both admire, a grand old man of British politics, yeah. of course, now sadly past. Mm. Daft as a brush on lots of issues, but bang on on others. Mm. A man who really personified, I think... Certainly during his latter years, the art of disagreeing gracefully and respecting one's opponents. But here's a wonderful quote from Tony Ben. He's saying this at a time when Japan was very much the emerging economy of the world, the up-and-coming economic superpower, and we were all worried about the efficiency of these Japanese car factories compared to Red Robber, at British Leyland and so on. So here he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I told you it was back to the 70s in this mm-hmm. episode. The NHS held a boat race against a Japanese crew and after Japan won by a mile, a working party found the winners had 18 people rowing And one steering, while the NHS had 18 people steering and one rowing. (laughs) So the NHS then spent £5 million on consultants, forming a restructured crew of four, assistant steering managers, three deputy managers and director of steering services. The rowers given an incentive to row harder. (laughs) They held another race and lost by two miles. So the NHS fired the for poor performance, sold the boats and used the proceeds to pay a bonus to the Director of Steering <laughs> Services. That is Tony Benn, one of the leading figures of the post-war British left over 40 years ago, getting on for 50 years ago, making the same points ...about the NHS that we are now making. This is a cross-party cause, isn't it? This is not a right-wing conspiracy or a left-wing conspiracy. People from across the political spectrum, Alison, you and I included... ...feel that the NHS is deeply inefficient. These inefficiencies are deep-rooted. And, as Anthony Wedgwood-Ben has just demonstrated from beyond the grave... Long-standing,
0: yes. But when you read that out, you think that was a politician of the left, of course, yeah. but of immense substance, who was yeah. able to see that the NHS had even then become an utterly self-serving organisation. Now you call it inefficient, Halligan. We are entering a period, I think, where people are going to die. Because of that inefficiency, it's not just you won't get seen. We're hearing from listeners who are being told they can have procedures in two or three years' time. It's no longer a matter for satire, but we haven't got any politicians stating what Tony Ben was prepared to state with such searing wit all those years ago because the Conservatives are too scared to touch it because they think they're weak on the NHS because everybody loves the NHS and the Labour Party, if the Conservatives try to do any reform, which is very unlikely given current pusillanimity, if that's the right word, if they try and say, right, we've obviously got to cut some... Good job you got the...
1: that new denture cream. <laughs> like that. <laughs> it is actually very good.
0: <laughs> what was that denture stuff called? You know, when I was a kid, my both my grandparents had kept the dentures in a glass oh on the bedside <laughs> table. But anyway, yeah, sterodent. the Sterodent in the glass. So we haven't got anyone really. And I feel with people like us that you put your head above the parapet and then you get shot down, evil Daily Telegraph sort of being nasty to these marvellous angels in the NHS. We're not talking about the angels in the NHS. We're talking about thousands and thousands of, I mean, they're multiplying like rabbits, Halligan. They duplicated, triplicated, quintupled layers of admin. I did ask George. (laughs) George works in this Hampton Court maze of NHS England and I wrote in the column as you'll have seen co-pilot just giving a flavour of <laughs> I don't even know the word for it the image I came up with was hydra or Hydra. I'm not sure how you see it but listeners will remember the monster from Greek mythology the multi-headed
1: monster you cut
0: one head off and two more appear absolutely and the NHS hydra has All of its multiple heads turned inwards, looking at all the other heads. So what George told me quickly was that NHS England... None of this management class are in any of the hospitals. They've got huge offices in London and Leeds with lots of satellite buildings in places like Leicester and Southampton and Taunton. So NHS England doesn't do any routine hospital management. It's solely responsible for implementing government policy. And George says... For every type of healthcare work stream, that's emergency care, elective, mental health, screening, immunisation, primary care, there's someone in NHS England in charge of overseeing the delivery. Now, each of those national leads has a team of people and each region, of which there are seven, has a more or less matching set of people overseeing delivery from a regional perspective. Now, Halligan, that's a hell of a lot of staff who are not actually providing any medical care but are busy reporting on how others are delivering it. But there's more, co-pilot. An executive board covers operations, finance, human resources, information technology, and each of those functions has a similarly extensive national and regional network. Now, George says, in Best George Style, that the functions of departments call things like improvement and transformation – Do you remember in W1A? Steering services.
2: Steering services.
0: Do you remember in W1A, they had that marvellous thing which was just called (laughs) Better.
1: Just called Better. The the BBC's admirably on the money sitcom about itself
0: about itself so improvement strategy and transformation George says that the function of these departments is murky but that essentially a lot of resources go into looking at how we can do things better and more efficiently while never appearing to make any progress in that direction and these functions also have national teams and regional teams. Of course they do. It's, It's Kafka. It is. And it's literally money, no object when the public is paying. Sad, really, to horrify listeners. But one final bit. In between NHS England and the hospitals, there are now integrated care systems, which are basically a partnership between the hospitals, GPs, some local authority service and healthcare commissioners. And they too, co-pilot, all have boards and heads of delivery and finance structures and business intelligence functions. And these are supposed to make... Local healthcare delivery more efficient. But as George observes, this is yet another in a long line of organisational configurations that may or may not deliver any real improvements or change. I don't know, says George, what the point of my job is. Other than to tell the people leading the oversight of various work streams how bad things are or how little they have improved so that they can have conversations with their counterparts out in the integrated care systems, who in turn will have conversations with their healthcare providers. <laughs> it's like a massive, futile game of Chinese whispers. God help us, Halligan. God help us.
1: George is, of course, our senior source within NHS England. We don't disclose who he or she is. We can't independently verify what George tells us when George delivers data to us that we report because it often isn't published. And when we do report it, we report it before it's published. George was involved in the 100th anniversary episode. He or she was there, or at least listening on the live stream. And George got a round of applause because of course, George has been a font of real knowledge. We've literally had cabinet ministers asking us for the next George update. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that's how mad this situation is, that NHS England's data, in some senses, isn't even available to ministers.
0: Can I ask you, co-pilot, A... They're giving them £12 more. Why wasn't that ring-fenced for frontline? We desperately need to train up now everything. It should be action stations on the ship, all the sirens going off. Pull back as many older medics, veteran medics and nurses as we can.
1: Absolutely. All hands to the pump. With one in nine people on an NHS waiting list, you opened your column with a really harrowing human story Directly reported to you by somebody who you've known for a very long time and and care about. I'll protect their privacy. I urge listeners to read that column again. The link is in the show notes to this episode.
0: All I can say is that this is a baby. He's an absolutely lovely baby. He's over one now. Uh, suffers from chronic ear infections, and the parents were told that until. He's had 13 chronic ear infections. He can't be eligible for grommets, which are the little things they put into the ears to expand the beardrum and make things more comfortable. And recently then, when he did pass his 13th lot of antibiotics, the parents were excited. And then they said the waiting list for the ENT consultant is nine months. So that's... To even see the even consultant. To even see the consultant, never mind. I'm really, I am kind of lost for words, really, because someone has to challenge this. It's a national disgrace, Liam. This is... Babies in other countries are not being told they have to have pass a threshold of actual serious infection before they can be considered for treatment. It's just dire. And I think that the fact that this money has been handed over, the fact they've clearly been spending it on replicating more of these absurd functions so brilliantly described by George, I think it's immoral.
1: I do think there's change in the air and I don't want to call this too early, but there was the excellent report by Tim Knox, who was a guest on Planet Normal in our 99th edition. So Tim is a very, very experienced researcher. He put together data across advanced countries for the Civitas think tank. He put together a really easy to read, but very authoritative report showing that on any objective measures, the NHS isn't under-resourced. On the contrary, it's bang in the middle of spending as a percentage of GDP among the advanced what we call OECD economies. And yet the clinical outcomes, the health outcomes are At the bottom or very near the bottom on almost every measure in terms of cancer survival rates, stroke survival rates, heart disease survival rates. Absolutely terrible. Then you've got this new report out, which you covered, Alison, from Policy Exchange, detailing again how this extra money has gone into more layers of bureaucracy. I wouldn't call it murderous. I would call it safety critical because that is a phrase that jeremy hunt used who i mentioned in the opening i've got quite a lot of time for jeremy hunt he was a very hard-working and i think respected health secretary across the political spectrum he was of course health secretary for longer than pretty much anyone else. six years wasn't it yeah he lasted six years which is incredible in such a difficult a highly pressured job he's on political maneuvers he might want to come back if boris drops the ball seriously seen as a more kind of moderate friendly to the home county's candidates but he's produced this book talking now about how the nhs has these preventable deaths jeremy hump talks about them openly now i made dispatches documentaries for channel four years mm. ago when it was clear there was preventable deaths and it was extremely difficult to get that fact on air because the NHS lawyers went absolutely ballistic mm. Mm. about it and there were huge threats made. The fact that a health secretary is now talking openly about these preventable deaths, which aren't just in the NHS, they're in many other international healthcare systems. I wish he talked about them more when he was actually Secretary of State for Health, but at least he is now talking about them. And we need to keep pointing out that it's not just nasty telegraph columnists saying this, it's people like Anthony Wedgwood-Ben. It's nice, sort of furry, cuddly Conservatives like Jeremy Hunt with genuine knowledge and understanding of how the system works. This isn't a cross-the-board, cross-party, emerging view now that we're not getting our money's worth in the NHS, and if the NHS was organised better, the clinical outcomes would be far superior than where they currently are.
0: But as you say, Liam, Jeremy Hunt was Secretary of State for Health for six years. And now he turns around, publishes a book saying, you know, the rogue NHS requires major surgery. I mean, the way he talks about it is like a mafia. He used the word omerta, which means the code of silence between mafia members, where you're not allowed to talk about mistakes or people who... Died. And we've been very lucky because we've had George and a number of other nurses and doctors in the NHS who have been prepared to talk to us, almost all hiding their identities, which I think in itself is very revealing. I don't share your good opinion of Jeremy Hunt. I think he fell down on his watch that there was a sort of pandemic, there was a report into preparedness for a pandemic. They didn't have the PPE ready to go. That's my view. But as you say, he has eventually put any criticism of the NHS at all from any public figure is extremely welcome. But I think what may drive it now is that we're seeing the public, most people, I imagine most listeners of Planet Normal, will have a family member or a friend who is experiencing some difficulty getting healthcare. And I think that sense of a gap between our NHS and the misery and long waits that people are experiencing will grow.
1: And I think in the weeks and months to come, as these waiting lists really come to the fore... And the cost of living squeeze gets tighter. I do think the public, and I hope the media, are going to demand more substance from both our government and from the opposition parties on policy. What are your ideas? What are Labour's ideas for making the NHS work better, beyond just saying the Tories want to scrap the NHS, 24 hours to scrap the NHS and the other ridiculous nostrums that they come up with all the time? What are the Tories' ideas for making the NHS work better rather than just you know endless endless increases in money chest beating about all the additional resources that are going in it it has to be about more than that.
0: Sajid Javid has sent in General Sir Gordon Messenger who's an ex-senior Royal Marine who'll have to take out his machete to get through the imagine hacking through all those layers of bureaucracy and I think we all wish Sir Gordon the best of British. I, I wanted to ask you Copilot, about about. Obviously, the cost of living is the huge story of the moment. Inflation has just hit a 40-year high of 9%. That's the sharpest increase in the cost of living since Margaret Thatcher was in number 10. Yet figures this week also show that we almost have full employment for the first time since 1974 when everyone was driving a nappy brown Austin Maxi. So there are more job vacancies now, Liam, than there are unemployed people. So how do we make sense of such bad economic news and good news happening at the same time?
1: We're in a situation where, for the first time ever, we've got more vacancies than we have people unemployed. (laughs) Just over 1.3 million vacancies is higher than the number of unemployed people. But of course, a lot of the unemployed don't have the skills to fill the vacancies or the vacancies are in parts of the country where the unemployed Aren't I think the unemployment numbers are slightly skewed because what we're also seeing is lots and lots of people leaving the workforce, no longer looking for work. So they don't count as a member of the workforce, so they're not working, but they don't count as unemployed. And that flatters the unemployment number, pushing it lower. People that have decided after the pandemic they don't want to work anymore for whatever reason. People who might have long COVID or been signed off long term sick so that's flattering the numbers the really big issue here though is inflation it is going to go higher you can see that the old rpi number the retail price index which includes housing costs that's up at 11.1 now but if you talk to people lower down the income scale who disproportionately spend. Their disposable income on the necessities like fuel and food the idea that the cost of living is only nine or ten or eleven percent higher than it was a year ago to them it's a sick joke the cost of living is 30 or 40 percent higher because most of what they spend their money in on is food and fuel and you can't just blame this on the war in ukraine this 54 percent increase in the energy price cap feeding into household fuel bills that rise was set in february before the Russians invaded Ukraine. It only came in in April, but it was set in February. It's just going to completely dominate politics. I sense that it's just going to blow away all the nonsense about party gate and leg gate and ridiculousness as more and more people and not just the lower income people on benefits, but people who previously thought themselves as comfortable, won't be able to pay their fuel bills. We'll see their food bills so eye-wateringly high that they seriously have to cut back on what they eat, eating different types of food, rather than the food that they've become used to. And you can see, if you look at the producer price index numbers, this is not the CPI or the RPI, this is the PPI, which we've discussed in the past, Alison. So the PPI is the cost of the inputs that firms need like materials, fuel, labour, in order to make the stuff and provide the services that they then sell on to us. And the PPI is at 18.6% in April, higher than April 2021. And in the end, those higher producer costs have to be passed on to consumers, otherwise firms go bust. And when you have a PPI that is double the consumer price index, you know there's more inflation coming down the line. And I have to say, I think the Tories are politically uncomfortable about an emergency budget because Labour are pushing them to do it. But What's politically comfortable is soon going to be replaced, in my view, by what's politically necessary.
0: Well, I thought about you in PPI yesterday. So you have taught me things, Halligan. So my beloved bingo went for his grooming yesterday. And it's gone... No, listen. <laughs> it's gone up from £40 to £50 since the last time. So That's
1: the, 25% inflation right there. Cut
0: and blow drive for a cockapoo is now 50 quid, And the groomer, Hayley, she apologised, but she said the cost of water, electricity, all the products. So obviously people like her are starting, aren't they, to pass on the full cost of the increases, which we haven't.
1: She only charges us 45. She saw you coming.
0: (laughs) uh... And in major news for my favourite author of the Sunday Telegraph's economic agenda, my personal chef went to Waitrose this week. I told you about this, made you laugh, didn't it?
1: Otherwise known as him indoors. Him
0: indoors. Him indoors, went to the supermarket to get the ingredients for tray bake and came back with a single courgette. Are you ready for this? Single courgette. Uh, I'm braced. 81p, okay. Now, that isn't even the rat in Ratatouille, is it? That's
1: (laughs) It's a gerbler <laughs> tui. That is the ultimate first world problem. God, you really know how to relate. No, to I'm. The, no, the great unwashed. My cockapoo <laughs> shampoo and set, and the courgette for my tray bake. Crikey. These are costs that people across the country will be being affected by. Now,
0: compared to my learned friend on the rocket, I was very unimpressed this week by Andrew Bailey supposedly a governor of the Bank of England, henceforth to be known as nothing to do with me, governor of the Bank of England, Telling the Treasury Select Committee that he was not at all happy about inflation and he felt helpless. Now you think, Halligan, you don't want an airline pilot coming on the tannoy to tell passengers that he's not at all happy about the turbulence. I mean, you want them to grip the wheel and get on with it. So is Andrew Bailey right to say that he's helpless when you have been telling Planet Normal listeners that he could and should have done a lot more earlier?
1: This may sound rich coming from me, Alison, but I do think it's dangerous to attack the Bank of England governor personally because we need him to be a credible figure when talking to global financial markets. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a sterling crisis. And if the pound plunges, that pushes up import costs, that pushes up inflation, the pound plunges even more. You get into a doom loop, the kind of thing I wrote about in my latest Telegraph column. Having said that, I do think the governor now has to rebuild his credibility because he did spend far too long saying that people like me who saw inflation coming were alarmist. He spent far too long dismissing inflation concerns as, "quotes transitory when clearly they weren't. If you knew how to read financial markets, things like break evens, spreads and even the cost of various commodities, you could see there was plenty of inflation coming down the track. We need a bit more grit in the oyster. We need proper open debate and discussion, and then we wouldn't make the kind of policy mistakes that the Bank of England has been making consistently for much of the last 12 months. I do apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast, Mine! I'm Christopher Hope, also known as Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street. Each episode, I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics, from London Mayor Sadiq Khan to Leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg. So pull up a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio! Back in 2017, the Oxford English Dictionary included among its new words of note the term woke, derived from a sense that someone is awake. Alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice, the definition now states. The term woke has since come to describe a kind of popular movement, particularly on social media. It's come to represent in the eyes of many a new and extremely unreasonable censoriousness. A sense that no one can say anything remotely controversial for fear of offending or triggering people who seem determined to take offence. And that description itself will, of course, be very offensive to some. Well, Joanna Williams, a former academic, has written a powerful new book published on Thursday, May the 19th, the day this episode of Planet Normal is released, called How Woke One. I started by asking Joanna Williams how we've reached the point where Her Majesty's Leader of the Opposition and even the Prime Minister himself are both reluctant to agree that an acceptable definition of a woman is someone who has a cervix.
2: I think Boris Johnson has come close, to give him credit. He's come close quite recently, but it is a very, very recent conversion. And you've got to suspect he's realised that most normal people, appropriately for planet normal, do know that only women have a cervix. Most people do know that there are differences between men and women. But I think there's a very strange mixture of cowardice, fear that if you say the wrong thing, transgender activists might come after you and hound you and criticise you, that it might not play well on social media. And we know that Twitter, especially, is very skewed towards younger, more progressive, more left-leaning, perhaps, voters. It might not play well in the media, which we also know is dominated by woke voices. So I think there's a kind of combination of genuinely being a bit cowardly, a bit nervous, but also actually buying into themselves some of these more ridiculous ideologies around gender identity in particular.
1: I'm looking at a picture here of some people wearing black masks surrounding a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst, of course, one of the most astonishing public figures of the 20th century, given her incredible role in assuring that women finally got the right to vote. These people are trying to stop women from celebrating Emmeline Pankhurst.
2: How has that happened? Well, it's truly terrifying when you see these pictures. And I think perhaps the word mask has become a little benign nowadays. To me, these pictures are of people in balaclavas. And if we talked about full-face balaclavas a generation ago, this would have clear implications of terrorists. And to me, this is what these people are. They're thugs. They are people who are highly motivated by a moral belief in their own certainty. If you like, they think they are morally superior because only they have insight into a view that women are not a biological reality, that anybody should be allowed to say that they are a woman, that it doesn't matter about your anatomy, it doesn't matter about your chromosomes, that just you saying that you feel like a woman, that's enough to make you a woman. And I guess to perhaps excuse these people ever so slightly or rather explain where they're coming from, I think we've got a generation of young adults adults now who have throughout their entire period of time in school being taught these views that biology counts for nothing, that gender is on a spectrum. You've got young people now who are absolutely steeped in this through their schooling, through the media they consume, because they somehow in their heads believe that they're acting on behalf of a victimised group, that they are the most morally superior, most progressive people around. And also because they have come to this warped view that words are actually a form of violence They think their real violence, their real bullying and intimidatory and thuggish tactics are actually perfectly legitimate. It's actually quite terrifying to see.
1: Now, here's a Planet Normal exclusive. My first job was working in a transvestite bar and... My eyes were completely open to a culture that I knew quite a bit about. I grew up in London in the 80s. Quite a lot of my school friends came out as gay. It was something that my generation celebrated. And clearly there's been such huge progress in justice for not just the homosexual community, but also the transgender community. There's a lot more live and let live than there used to be. And I think that is a sign of huge progress and huge civilisation here in the UK that quite a lot of Western countries are still catching up with. On the other hand, Joanna, when I see Joe Biden on his first day as US president signing an order permitting boys who identify as girls to compete on female sports teams and enter female changing rooms, my feelings completely change.
2: I mean, I have to say I'm not even really convinced that society is more progressive nowadays in terms of a live and let live. It seems that the era that you're describing, which would be my early adulthood as well, Mm. uh, it seems that that was actually a period that was, um, you know, I'm going to say a word which doesn't sound like a political word, but I think it actually is. It seems like that was actually a more fun time, that people could be transgressive, that people could be radical, and people didn't take themselves so seriously. Whereas now. Nowadays it doesn't seem like you can just do anything for fun or even just to challenge to push back to be radical you know everything's got to become a, an inherent part of your identity and if anything upsets your sense of your identity then this becomes a big political statement that you have to stand on guard and push back and enroll others into fighting against this perceived offense so it seems to me that in some ways we've actually become less tolerant perhaps we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I think that's a real shame. But I think certainly in things like women's rights, you know, you can see things that we had at Actually, really taken for granted. I mean, I feel as if I'm very lucky. I'm your typical Gen Xer. You know, I'm late forties now, and I grew up throughout my entire life with the sense that women can do whatever we want to be able to do. That there's nothing holding me back. Certainly, nothing in relation to my sex that's holding me back. That sexism and misogyny were really the stuff of history. But like I said, then you see exactly as you're saying, Joe Biden saying that girls' sport should not just be for girls anymore, that anybody who says they're a girl, any boy who decides he wants to compete in a... Which
1: people like Sharon Davis, people like Sally Gunnell, you know, British sporting legends, world-class sportswomen, they are now leading the way in terms of saying you will destroy women's elite sport if you allow this to happen, because... However much time you spend trying to change basically the chemistry of your body in adult life, if you've been through male puberty, you have male bones, male muscles. And that's not to challenge or belittle or denigrate in any way somebody's desire to identify in a different way in terms of gender in later life. That's completely up to them. But if they get in a swimming pool with female-born competitors, if they're even a bit good
2: they're going to win. It's great to see the uh, Martina Navratilova, Sharon Davies. These are brilliant women and I really take my hat off to them. They get such a pummeling, don't they, for speaking out? Well, they out. do. They do. But what's really interesting and also sad is that these are, are women athletes who have retired, have retired a fairly long time ago now and are actually in dare I say it, quite a safe position now. To, they can afford the luxury if you like. Mm. It shouldn't be a luxury. It shouldn't be a luxury mm. at all. But I guess people a bit like jk rowling as well who have made their money if you like have had their career success and are now in a position where they do have that intellectual freedom political freedom to speak their minds i would really strongly suggest that that should be a freedom which we should all enjoy but i think what's interesting is that any athletes who are currently competing who speak out about this nearly always do so anonymously because they're just aware that not just even the backlash they'd face on social media but perhaps potential advertising or sponsorship deals would all be taken away from them and they just can't afford to speak out now that's a terrible indictment of where the sporting establishment's at nowadays but also you know where the influencers are coming from in the mainstream media that mean that people don't speak out like that
1: now, you're an academic by background. You were a director at the University of Kent Centre for the Study of Higher Education until 2016. You then founded Keo spelled C-I-E-O, which you direct. It's a platform for research and debates that universities today, in your words, dare not touch. So tell us about this book. It sounds as if this was something that was bottled up inside you for a while and you needed to write
2: I think that's absolutely true. I'm very interested in groupthink, if you like, and how groupthink develops and how that pressure to conform really hits free speech very hard, stops people speaking their minds. And I guess when we think about censorship, normally we think about bans and restrictions and police officers coming knocking on your door. But I think groupthink can act as a very censorious impulse and bring people in line with one particular way of thinking and it just seemed to me that I think universities are probably the most woke institutions. But if you look also at schools, at the education system more broadly, even within parts of the NHS, within nurse training, within the civil service and within many big businesses as well, there's a kind of single mindset, a woke mindset, I'm terming it, where there's a particular set of ideas about race, a particular set of ideas about gender, which we've already been talking about. And, you know, if you transgress, if you speak out and say something that's different to this kind of accepted orthodoxy on gender, on race in particular then you know you you just don't fit in you don't get the promotions you don't get the career advancement and that's kind of the best case scenario the worst case scenario is that you do have the police coming knocking on your door to accuse you of hate crime or pre crime hate crime thought crime essentially And I think this has such a really detrimental effect on our democracy, essentially. If people can't say what they truly think, if people are corralled into accepting this one way of thinking, I think that's very, very damaging for our society. But also, what lies at the heart of this way of thinking on gender and race, it presents itself as something very progressive. It presents itself as really just being an extension of the old political correctness that we were familiar with in the 1990s. But I actually think it's something very different, something far more damaging, because it encourages to see the differences that we have between us, to judge each other essentially by skin colour, to look at differences based on gender as being the most important things about us whereas i guess i come from a kind of older generation where to be progressive was to move beyond those surface features of skin color or sex and actually look at what did a person think about something you know what what have we got in common rather than what is it that's dividing us into other smaller groups
1: The word woke, it derives, doesn't it, from a sense that somebody is awake. It became very mainstream in 2017. The definition then entered the Oxford English Dictionary as a new word of note. The definition reading, now chiefly alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice. I would fight very hard with extreme passion that I am alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice. And I suggest that you are too, Joanna, having had a look at your book, How Woke One. What happened that we became so extreme in terms of these definitions, that to be so alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice, that pretty much normal behaviour, like putting up a statue, I say again, of Emmeline Pankhurst, suddenly became unacceptable?
2: Yeah, I think one problem is it's not just being woke, it's not just about being alert or even being kind of super alert to racial injustices or gendered injustices. It seems to me that it's very much dressed up in like one particular interpretation of what these injustices mean and one kind of correct way of responding to these injustices. So we could all point to examples that we are aware of in our past where we've come across instances of racism or sexism, for example. And I like to think that I've tried to challenge those instances when I've come across them and I hope lots of other people would have done too. And it's certainly not something that I would ever dream of. But again, you know, I don't think that makes me woke because I think what's wrapped up in the word woke is again, one particular way of responding to this. So ideas around white privilege, for example, or white supremacy or ideas that black people are always inherently disadvantaged in every situation, which may or may not be true, And I think unless you buy into that, then you're not going along with the kind of woke ideas. They want to dictate exactly how we should respond and how we should interpret this. I think the role that the left has played politically in abandoning the working class as an agent of change in society and looking to identity groups to bring about that social change is a major contributory factor to the kind of identitarian Outlook that we're all told is important for us to have today. You see a very good example of this in reaction to Brexit, for example, where you go back again to kind of my old political heroes of Tony Benn and people like that who were very anti the EU because they wanted power to reside with the democratic citizens of the nation. They recognize that by hiving off power to supranational institutions, you took power away from ordinary people. But it seems that many on the left nowadays are only too pleased for power to be taken away from ordinary people. They're actually quite contemptuous of working class people. They're all too happy to see them as being a bit racist, a bit backward, a bit xenophobic, not up with the latest lingo. And I think woke really sums up, for me, that contempt that the left has for the working class, essentially. And you can see even in the way that the language changes and phrases come and go out of fashion and there's a certain woke way of speaking, a woke-approved vocabulary that you'll learn when you go to university. It's one of the main things you'll learn. And if you've got that vocabulary, your face fits and you're in the woke clique, But for me, it's really those broader political changes that have occurred on the left of politics that are really responsible for where we are today and and the rise of woke.
1: One thing I thought was really interesting, Joanna, finally, when Labour lost the seat of Hartlepool, Peter Mandelson's old seat, a seat they've (laughs) held forever, basically, they lost it to the Tories. You had one of Labour's MPs, Khalid Mahmood, Pakistan-born, very canny Birmingham MP, very much his own man. He quit the front bench because he said that Sir Keir Starmer's Labour Party had become more concerned, in his words, with the interests of woke social media warriors obsessed with identity division and even tech utopianism, have more in common with Californian high society than the kind of people who voted in Hartlepool. What is the ultimate end game here if the left doesn't listen to very streetwise MPs like Khalid Mahmoud? Where are we heading?
2: In some ways, I don't think there is an end game. One of the things that's very difficult about woke is to kind of nail exactly what it is and who are the leading thinkers here. I think rather it's a very nebulous, very fluid kind of movement where ideas come and go and change very rapidly. When people have the moral high ground and feel as if they're morally superior to others, and particularly when they have that combined with a sense that they're acting on behalf of victims, you know, real authority. Authoritarianism can be unleashed, which is terrifying to think about as no end of the restrictions and punishments and retaliations that can be unleashed upon people who don't buy into this mindset. But I really hope it won't come to that. And I think the one thing that really keeps me going and I guess made me write the book in the first place is the hope that it won't come to that because it seems to me that whenever I The disinfectant of democracy, whenever sunlight is shone upon the woke worldview, you know, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny at all. It certainly doesn't stand up to democratic scrutiny. Whenever woke policies, whether this is to rename a street or to take down a statue or a candidate standing in an election, you know, whenever these policies are put directly to people, people reject it. And this is why you see that so many transgender activists, for example, are so quick to avoid debate. The reason why they're so scared of free speech is because they realize their arguments have no substance. So I think if woke activists do have their way, society could become increasingly authoritarian. But my genuine hope and belief is that democracy will prove the ultimate victor here. And the more we learn about woke, the more we come to identify it, to be able to name it, to be able to call it out, then the more it will just diminish and wither away because there's no genuine kind of intellectual or political substance that can actually sustain this worldview.
1: Dr. Joanna Williams... Thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal.
2: Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And How Woke One, the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance and reason by Joanna Williams is published today, the 19th of May by Spiked.
0: It's a really important book, Liam, I think. Joanna Williams is an incredibly admirable, cogent writer and campaigner. The word reason, sweet reason, you know, that's what she's appealing to and I love that interview. As a woman, a feminist, a mother of a daughter, I'm extremely frightened and concerned that there's an explosion in in the number of girls moving to change sex. There's a kind of peer contagion, Liam, you could hardly imagine. And what I feel as a feminist is that women, young women who would have been maybe gay or they'd just, guess what? They'd have been a bit of a tomboy. You know, you've got girls, I've got a girl. They went through a phase of, you know, wearing Doc Martens or dungarees, but they were women. Women could be anything they wanted. They could be uber feminine or they could be, you know, a bit stompy around in boots and dungarees and now they'll be told oh you're trans because you like to have short hair or wear slightly more masculine clothes no the category of women is broad and wonderful and encompasses all elements of femininity so I think Joanna's written a fantastic book and it is threatening and people have got to be brave and people as you said like Sharon Davis, Martina Navratilova, we've got to have Men and women speaking out against this tyranny because it's like a witch hunt. Arthur Miller could have written about it in The Crucible, to be honest. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful messages coming. We absolutely love reading them and we've had an absolute torrent of great emails this week. This is from Jack. Thank you for Planet Normal. I hope you know that it has meant so much to know that there have been people out there questioning the madness of the last two years. I was struck by your comments about the NHS. When Sajid Javid told them to get back to normal, you'd have thought the NHS would have taken the hint, but no such thing is happening. The crisis that is the NHS has been brought home to our own family an elderly widowed relative with known heart issues, let's call him Frank, collapsed and fell in the supermarket recently. The supermarket was great, took care of him whilst waiting for the ambulance, which took about two and a half hours to arrive. Frank was eventually taken into A&E, but nobody was allowed to go in with him. He was in A&E for two days, waiting to be seen by the emergency assessment unit. When he was finally moved on to a ward, Frank reported that he asked for water Heard nurses order others to fetch him water, but it never arrived and he couldn't leave his bed to fetch water. All tests done, Frank came home after a week on that ward. He is now telling me he wants to talk to GPs, community nurses and his relatives about never going into hospital again, no matter how bad he is. He was so scared, not receiving food or drink as though he had been forgotten. No nurses passing by, no visitors. Frank says he would rather be at home with a stream of family and friends, and that is what he's proceeding to put in place. What is this NHS that can treat anyone, let alone the elderly in such a way that they are too scared to go into hospital? Why is the NHS not back to normal? We are angry and frustrated at the state of the NHS, GP surgeries and hospitals, and what it is doing to patients like Frank, and yet feel so helpless. Keep up the pressure. These stories must be told. Best wishes, Jack.
1: That's really powerful. Here's one from Paula. Dear Alison and Liam, I've just finished listening to the 100th episode celebratory Planet Normal. I've spent most of it in an extremely emotional state. Sue Cook summed it up absolutely perfectly. I'm not even sure why I felt so emotional. I can only assume that this episode tapped into the memories of the lockdown I had as a key worker in mental health And then the return to an empty home as i was single during the whole of 2020 and the distress of not being able to see my children grandchildren dad and mum and friends properly others had it a lot worse than me i know and i did all i could to help myself stay sane sometimes successfully sometimes not but planet normal was probably the best thing that happened to me and so many of us to help get us through this nightmare i want to thank the rocket of right thinking because you have no idea how much it meant to me tuning in every Thursday at a time I've never felt so alone, listening to so many wonderful guests, intelligent and brave people, challenging popular views and the scaremongering. Planet Normal reduced the fear for me. It got me angry, but also helped me beyond measure, letting me know others were feeling just as I was. I never missed an episode. Sometimes I'd become a complete mess as I listened to stories others were going through, feeling so much for Roberts and his beloved Josephine and feeling so cross on their behalf at inhumane rules, Uh. shedding many tears as heartbreaking emails were read out as well as having so much needed big belly laughs at your humour too. Thanks so much, Alison and Liam. Your podcast is by far my very best favourite. I really do look forward to it every week. Planet Norm will always be very special for me as it helped get me and so many others through crazy, surreal... Times. Bless you both, Paula. It's really moving.
0: Oh, bless you, Paula. That's absolutely lovely to hear. And here are two more thank yous for our special 100th edition, Liam. Joy says, Many congratulations on your 100th episode of Planet Normal. The planet of sweet reason and common sense has been a highlight of my week since its inception. You have been entertaining, thought provoking, courageous, and just well, normal as have been your superb guests. Thank you both for your fantastic journalism and keep on being orthogonal to the orthodoxy. If ever the post of joint benign dictator of the UK becomes available, I hope you would both apply. I, and I'm sure most of your listeners, would vote for you. I'm not sharing benign dictator of the UK with you, Halligan, I tell you.
1: I'd have to launch a bloodless coup. (laughs)
0: And Belinda, who I met with great pleasure. Thank you so much for a memorable evening. We've listened to every episode. I have made notes of your facts and then memorized them to quote <laughs> to my friends. Poor friends, Belinda. Friends who were sadly brainwashed and utterly obedient. I was immensely impressed how professional and unnervous you both were when faced with a live audience. Well, that was mainly Halligan. I was a bit nervous. Robert and I were not expecting drinks and substantial canapes and then a going home present as well. Thank you again. And Alison, listen to this, Halligan. You look so slim and young. Liam, change your telegraph picture. I was expecting a small, nerdy, chubby chap. Much love, Belinda. Right, that, is, not, that is not, a
1: microaggression. I'm triggered <laughs> and you're cancelled.
0: It's because Belinda thinks you're so handsome in a, in, a, in a mid-period John Travolta quiff kind of way. That's what it is.
1: It's the most backhanded comment I've ever <laughs> come across. Right. That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison. Should we give it to someone who hasn't got a mug? Because this is
0: what I'm slightly concerned about. Okay, no, we're definitely going to give it to Paula for her wonderful eulogy. Very, very touching. Paula, you can have a Planet Normal mug, darling.
1: So email us, Paula, at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put the words mug winner in the subject heading and give us your postal address and a rarera's rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug will be winging its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal,
0: please, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others to find us and it doesn't half cheer up me and the co-pilot. And do keep
1: emailing us. It helps the Planet Normal family to grow and your input is the lifeblood of Planet Normal. It's the rocket fuel that fills our engines as we blast off <laughs> every week
0: we can't if, afford any other kind of that's field, right can we? <laughs> it's all gone through the
1: roof we're going to eat the emails too <laughs> food prices spiral and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers isabel bajard elliot Lampitt, and our editor zoe hitch stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him